Luke sixteen nineteen to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you are anything like me, then you have a difficult time um, thinking, talking, about eternal punishment in hell. Um, it's just incredibly, it's just incredibly difficult thing for us to even think about for any long period of time. And when I stop and when I stop and think about the, the physical, the actual reality of hell, um, I, I mean, I'm filled with fear. I'm filled with sadness. I'm I'm very afraid for those who I'm I'm just very concerned that they're going to die um, without being saved, without being born again. They're going to die apart from Christ, and and then I'm I'm also filled with sadness thinking about those who have died, and I'm fairly certain, pretty certain, very certain um, that they never believed the gospel. If we stop and think about this for any period of time at all, it's it's difficult, isn't it? It's hard to even know like what to do with this. About thirty years ago, R.C. Sproul said something very interesting. He he said he said virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. We cannot take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what he said regarding eternal punishment. Sproul goes on to say, there is very little about hell in the Old Testament, and there's very little in the epistles. It's almost as if God decided that teaching this frightening would not be received from any lesser authority than that of his own son. I think, I think R.C. Sproul is onto something there. Um... The, the doctrine of hell, the frightening teaching, biblical teaching of hell, um, is a lot for us to handle. It feels almost too much for us to handle. 
But if we are going to take Jesus seriously, we also must take what he said about hell seriously. Jesus loves us too much to hide the truth about hell from us. We discover in his word that hell is real, it's eternal, and it is terrible. Jesus loves us too much to hide this truth from us. So let's not hide this truth from the people in our lives either. So what we have to do this morning, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, what we have to do is we have to do the hard work of, of looking carefully at this parable. And this is, this is an uncomfortable parable. There's, there's stuff in here that um, is scary. We, we're going to do the hard work of seeing what Jesus has to say in this parable. Because we want to take Jesus seriously, and He has given this parable to us. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to break the parable up into three statements. As I was studying it this week, I thought that the, the, the best way to get a handle on this parable is to break it up into three statements. Statement number one, if this life is all there is, then the rich man wins. If this life is all there is, then the rich man wins. Verse 19, we are, Jesus is telling a parable and he is, and he is introducing us to a, to a rich man. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. This man had it all. This man had it all. And it's almost humorous. It's almost humorous the way Jesus... Well, it is. It's funny to me. It may not be funny to you. Um, but I, I am 78% junior high boy. So it is, it is, um, it is humorous to me. The, the three things Jesus says about this man, he's clothed in purple, he feasted sumptuously, and he had fine linen. That's underwear. He had really, really nice underwear. The three, I mean, when Jesus, when Jesus wraps up the good life here on earth, nice clothes, really nice underwear, imported the good stuff, right? And he feasted sumptuously. Interesting. The, the picture here is that he had everything he wanted. He had everything he wanted. He was loaded. He feasted sumptuously every day. So, I mean, we're gonna, um, after this service, you all are going to stay. None of you are going to go home. And you're going to stay here. And you're going to eat with us. And you're going to feast sumptuously with us. There's, we have way too much food. You need to stay. And we have lots of meat. And if you're a vegetarian, church, this is church, you can repent of that sin. And you can join us today. Amen. Or you can just come and eat carrots or whatever. I don't care. Uh, stay and eat with us. Anyhow, but this man did this every day. Every day he had his servants prepare for him an extravagant, indulgent feast. That was his thing. Really nice underwear and eating really good all of his, every day of his life. And you think, that's not that great. Well, the point is, like, you, whatever he wanted, he had. Whatever he wanted, he had. And perhaps you would do something different. If you, if you had that much money, maybe you would go a different path than him. But the, the point is, whatever he wanted, 
he had. And then we look at Lazarus. We look at Lazarus. Verse 20. Now, there, there's, actually, there are some people who, um, who think that this is not a parable because Jesus names Lazarus. This is the only fictional character in a, in a parable that's, that's named, that, that, that Jesus gives a name to. Um, but there's a lot of evidence, a lot of like, a lot of literary evidence that Jesus is telling yet again another parable. Um, so we have a, a, a verse 20 at this, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. More even, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus is a, is a poor beggar. Lazarus' name means one who is helped by God. Essentially, that's what his name means. One who is helped by God. But you wouldn't know it to look at him. He had to be laid at the rich man's gate, which means someone had to carry him there. He's impoverished. He's sick. He's covered with sores. He's, he's unable. He's a, it seems like he's unable to walk. He's unable to get to where he needs to be to beg. And he simply gets to the, he, he's taken to the poor man, or to the rich man's gate, and then he, and then he begs there. He just, he wants to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Just, just bring me the stuff that you would take out to the trash. Just, just bring me the food that's fallen to the floor that no one wants. Just bring me that. It's the, it's the stuff we saw in Matthew that, that they would give to the dogs. The, 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 the dogs get what's, what's dropped onto the floor. If you're, if you're, if it's like our house, like at our house, um, uh, we don't have very many table scraps. We don't have, there's not very much food that hits the floor if it's a meal that all of my children love. Right? Um, they're very good at getting the, the food to their mouth if it's really good food that they like. But if there's like carrots or something like that, suddenly they become very clumsy. And, and you know, you look under the table, there's a whole carrot under there, and then there's all of its friends. And you wonder, um, if it's food you like, none of it hits the floor. Anyhow, I didn't come here to say that. This man is just like whatever, whatever you would, whatever you would, be taking to the dustbin, to the to the dumpster, whatever you would be taking to the dumpster, just just give it to me instead, please. Just whatever you don't need, whatever you would trash. It seems like the rich man's dogs. If, if these are the rich man's dogs, the ones that come and lick his sores, if. Seems like they're doing okay. It seems like they're getting some scraps from the master's table. But Lazarus had nothing. No one is showing him compassion except for the dogs. The dogs show kindness to him. They come and try to heal him by licking his sores. They, they show some compassion on him. Lazarus has nothing, nothing but misery. So if you look at these three verses and you say, who has it better? Who won? Who came out on top? Who came out on top? Seemed very much like the rich man won. 
He had everything his heart desired, and Lazarus had nothing but misery. So we have to understand that as we're trying to understand this parable. Statement number one, if this life is all there is, then the rich man wins. He's the one who comes out on top. However, most of you are not going to be surprised. Statement number two, but this life is not all there is. Statement number two, but this life is not all there is. If this life is all there is, the rich man wins, but this life is not all there is. Starting in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So in Jesus' story here, Lazarus dies and he is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. I've, I've told you guys, the older I get, the more I just cry. I just start to cry. And this is one of those times um, we, we see Lazarus, but I think, um, I think he's given a name by Jesus. Because Jesus wants us to understand that if we belong to God, the Ancient of Days knows our name. His love is sure, and He knows our name. I think that's why Lazarus is named here. God knows Him. God knows Him in a way He does not know the rich man. Lazarus dies, and you have the picture here of a, of a royal escort, don't you? You have a picture of the of the rich guy, of the of the of the real rich guy sending his limo for Lazarus. God sends his angels for Lazarus. And he is escorted to this wonderful messianic banquet. That's what the that's what's being pictured here with, with Lazarus at Abraham's side like the, the the first listeners the people who were listening to this parable the first time as Jesus was telling it they would have automatically had in this in their minds the picture of this this huge banquet this incredible banquet and Abraham was going to be a VIP at this banquet Abraham was going to be there and here is Lazarus being being taken by the angels and escorted to this this amazing heavenly feast and he is and he is sat down right next to Abraham. God says, "I know you. I love you. You're done begging for scraps. You're coming to my table and you're going to you're going to sit with the VIPs and you're going to eat whatever you want. Welcome my child into the joy of the Lord." Lazarus goes from temporary suffering in this world to eternal joy in the world to come. Lazarus goes from temporary suffering here on this earth to eternal joy in heaven. But it is the opposite for the rich man. The rich man is going to go from temporary joy here on earth to eternal suffering in hell. The end of verse 22, the rich man also died 
and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Scripture treats the, the teaching of hell a lot like it, 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 te- it treats the, the, the teaching of, of heaven. We don't have a ton of concrete details. We don't have a ton of concrete details. But we do know from Jesus, from Scripture, we do know that, that hell is real, it is eternal, and it is terrible. It is real anguish. It is real pain. Jesus captures the pain in this parable um, with the idea that even a drop of water on someone's tongue could provide relief. This This is unimaginable torment. Now we know, and we know, like, like Jonathan Edwards said it, something along the lines of, a sin against an infinite God deserves infinite punishment. We, intellectually, we understand that and we agree. The, the, the more we understand just how infinite, how holy, how majestic God is, then we, have, we understand there are no little sins that deserve little punishment. We understand that. But it is still frightening and unsettling to think about punishment in hell that is very real, that is everlasting, and it is terrible. And when we consider that, that makes our final statement, statement number three, that makes our final statement even more surprising, even more difficult to imagine. So so statement number three is this. Even in hell, the rich man is a hard-hearted fool. You never hear in Scripture about someone in hell repenting. You never hear about that. We see it again here. This is very surprising. Starting in verse 23, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his table. And listen what this rich man does. There is no, there's no repentance. There's no confession of sin. There's no guilt. There's no nothing. We, we still just have pride. He calls out, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So he's, he's kind of hoping, he's kind of basing this on the fact that, that Abraham is his, is his ethnic father, his, his family father. He comes from Abraham's nation. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame. A few things jump out to us here. For one thing, he's, he's treating Lazarus as if he's still beneath him. He won't speak directly to Lazarus. 
We know he knows Lazarus, which means he knew that Lazarus was the one begging outside his gate, the one he should have showed compassion to in life but never did. There's no remorse for any of that. And he's still thinking of Lazarus as beneath him. He doesn't address Lazarus himself. Instead, he says, Abraham, you got me, right? Send the servant boy to help me out. That's the vibe here. No remorse over sin. Still great deals of, of arrogance. Abraham said, no, 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 no. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like, time, in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. It's over. And then he says in verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. There's no getting from there to here. and There's no getting from here to there. There's a great chasm. It is over. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Verse 27, and then, it, then the, 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 the rich man just keeps at it though. He says, he, and he said, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, to send him. Send Lazarus. Again, he's still not speaking to Lazarus. He's still treating Lazarus as if he's Abraham, some sort of like heavenly servant boy, some sort of, someone that's beneath all of us here. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. They have scripture. Let them hear them. And still, in hell, the rich man is arguing with Father Abraham. He said, no, Father Abraham. No, you don't understand. The Word of God's not enough. No, you don't understand. Even though you're in heaven and I'm hell, I'm in hell. Let me, let me teach you how this should go. Do you, do you hear the hubris there? Do you hear the arrogance? The hard-hearted pride. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Even in hell, the the rich man refuses to believe the simple truth of God's word. He refuses to repent of his pride. He is a hard-hearted fool even in hell. Doesn't this give us just some sense of how deep our sin is? Of how stubborn our unbelief is? Now, it's too late for him. In Jesus' story here, it's over for the rich man. There is a great chasm fixed, and that rich man is never getting from torment in hell to joy in heaven. It is Over. Even if he would be willing to repent, it is over. It's too late for him. But if you're in this room this morning, it is not too late for you. It's not too late for us. What do we need to learn from this parable? Four things, really quickly. Four things we need to learn from this parable. Number one, we need Jesus. We have to remember 
In, in Luke, we, you can get lost in the weeds in Luke because there's so much happening and it's such a big book. You have to remember the, you have to remember the context of the story. And you have to remember that Jesus is telling this parable on his way to Jerusalem. Luke keeps making a point of the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We're going to see it next week. He's on his way to Jerusalem, but he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. That's not the way to Jerusalem. This is just a weird... So, so we're not talking about geographically only going to Jerusalem. What it means there is Jesus is intent on going to Jerusalem when the time is right for him to die for our sins. He is headed to Jerusalem to die for our sins. It's a, it's a theological destination rather than just simply a geographical path. It's, a, it's, a, it's an obedience path. It's a redemption path. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die for our sins. And along the way, he is sending out severe warnings to those who reject him. We've seen this over the last couple of chapters in the book of Luke. The Pharisees over and over and over have shown two things they're, they're wrapped up in money, they're wrapped up in this love of money, and they're wrapped up in this self-justification. So they want to be rich and influential, and Luke is tying that to this, this, this desire that they have to, to have people be impressed with them. They want to make everyone around them think that God is impressed with them. They're so good at keeping the law, right? That's what they, they want to give off this, this vibe that they are so good at keeping the law that God's definitely going to let them into heaven. Sure, they're a shoe-in. Absolutely. And they, and they want to maintain like this, this, uh, this social, this social influence, this social clout, this social respectability. So they love money and they love to have other people impressed with them. And so when Jesus tells them to repent of their sin, when Jesus says that He is the only way to God, they sneer at Him. And, they are sneering at the, at the poor, rotten, dirty sinners who come and trust and follow Jesus. The ones who have ears to hear. The ones who have eyes to see. The, 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 the Pharisees sneer at these little peons. These, these, these dregs of society with all their nasty sin. The Pharisees sneer at them. So Jesus is calling them out over and over and over. He, the, Last week, for, for instance, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. They heard what Jesus was saying, but you can't serve God and money about, about thinking about eternal reward when you, when you deal with your money. And Jesus is saying all this stuff, and the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You're an abomination in the sight of God. They refuse. They refuse to believe the gospel. There are, there are all kinds of people clamoring to get into the kingdom of God. They are trusting Jesus. They want Jesus more than they want anything else. And they are forcing their way into the kingdom, it says in our verses last week. They, they love Jesus. They trust Jesus. They want Jesus. They're going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs. And, and they know that they, are, that they are spiritually bankrupt and He is their only hope. And so they're clamoring to get in. And Jesus says, you Pharisees are the opposite. Let's not make that same mistake. By God's grace, let's recognize this morning, we need, we need Jesus. He is our only hope. 
He is our only hope to be forgiven of our sins. He is our only hope to escape the horrific punishment in hell. He alone is the only way we can, we can, we can escape the wrath of God in a real, terrible, eternal hell. We need Jesus. That's number one. Number two, if we've received mercy, we should show mercy. Number two, if, if we've received mercy, then we should show mercy. So once again, Jesus is taking aim at the Pharisees here. Alright? They, they want to look good to others. Alright? They want to look good in front of people, but, but one of the things he's going to level them with in other passages of Scripture, they don't have any true compassion for others. They don't actually love anybody in their life. They are filled with disdain and contempt for anyone that they would consider beneath them. So Jesus is painting a pretty dramatic picture of that in this parable. He's, he's saying, this, this rich man, Pharisees, this is you. This is you. Here's Lazarus literally at the rich man's gate, and the rich man can't be bothered to toss him some table scraps. The message is clear. This is not the way for those who understand, for those who understand that they are not righteous in themselves. This is not the way for those who understand how desperately they need the mercy of God. If we've received mercy, then we show mercy. And this is a, there is a tight connection here in Luke's mind between, between loving God or I should say, there's a, there's a contrast here in Luke's mind between loving God or loving money. Serving God or serving money. If you're going to show mercy, it's going to cost you. And the Pharisees were not interested in that. Just like this rich man is not interested in this. Now, it's clear from the, from the Word of God, it's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have disposable income. Abraham himself, very wealthy. Luke was probably more wealthy than most people in his generation. Theophilus, who he's writing this letter to, probably wealthy. It's not a sin to have money. It's not a sin to feast sumptuously. It's not. It's a very good thing to do every once in a while, to enjoy the gifts that God has given has provided, and to enjoy time with each other. It's a, it's a good thing to do. It's not even a sin to have nice underwear. If you really want... I mean, the point of this parable is not to go buy your underwear at a garage sale or something. That's not, that's not what's being taught here. I told my wife I was going to say that in the sermon. And I said, what do you think? Should I say something about buying underwear at a garage sale? She said, I wouldn't say it, but no one will be surprised when you do. I took that as a compliment, as I do with all things. It's not a sin or a virtue to have more money than the people around you. I think we can all think of people who we would say are considerably wealthier than we are, who are among the most humble, godly, generous, Christ-like people we know. And we can say for the same for, the, for people who, who don't make as much money as we do. It's not a sin or a virtue to have more money than others, or to have less money than others. It is a sin to serve money rather than God. 
It is a sin to find your identity and your wealth and your holiness in how much money you have. It is a sin to be selfish. Those who have received mercy must show mercy to others. And oftentimes that means, some, in some way, it means giving of our time or giving of our, our money, or giving of our gifts. And something else is fascinating from this story. The fascinating thing about this story is that Lazarus is probably very close to you. Whoever the Lazarus or two in your life that could really use your kindness and your compassion, probably right outside your gates or maybe within your gates. You don't have to go serve in a soup kitchen. You can if you want to. You absolutely should if you want to. But I bet you have a Lazarus or two not too far away. This is a good time for us to remember when we think about those who have received mercy should show mercy. This is a good time to think about whether or not we're neglecting our spouse. Whether or not we've been kind and engaging with our children. Or perhaps we have a neighbor who is brokenhearted or lonely or sick. Or maybe there's someone in church who needs encouragement. Say Someone who has burdens they need help bearing. I think if you look around for someone to be merciful to, it won't take you too long to find someone. If we've received mercy, then we should show mercy. Number three, the believer's sores are light and more momentary. I don't think anybody in this life would want to trade places with Lazarus. Lazarus' name means the one who is helped by God, but it's not readily apparent how God is helping him when we first meet Lazarus in this story. But God did help Lazarus. We know from the rest of the book of Luke that as soon as Lazarus is in this story angelically escorted to heaven, what that means is that God did help him. God saved him. God opened up his eyes and his ears to see and believe the Gospel. God forgave his sins through Jesus. And when Lazarus died, the angels brought him to a feast beyond all imagination. Lazarus had real terrible pain in this life. But it was nothing compared to the pain he escaped. The the eternal pain that he was rescued from. And it was nothing compared to the joy in the life to come. Paul says this is why our afflictions here on earth are light and momentary. They don't seem light and momentary now, but if you sit next to Lazarus and you sit next to Abraham and you, you sit down at the feast with them, you stand face to face with the Ancient of Days who loves you and who knows your name. You're, you're going to look back on whatever it was in this life and you're going to say, it wasn't that big a deal. Because the believer's sores are light and momentary. Finally, last thing we need to learn from this parable. Number four, we have all we need for gospel work. We have all we need for gospel work. 
the, the rich man says, Father Abraham, you gotta, you got to raise someone from the dead and you got to send them to my brother's house. Because if you raise someone from the dead and you send them to my brother's house, then they'll believe. Then they'll escape hell. Abraham says, no. No, no, no. No. They have the Word of God. That's all they need. That's what God uses to convince people to believe the Gospel. The Scripture. The, the clear, straightforward truth of Scripture. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It is very interesting that Lazarus in this story is named Lazarus. Because there is a real-life Lazarus, right? Who, who um, the, uh, He's not the poor um, beggar with all the sores. It's the, it's the brother of Mary and Martha who Jesus does raise from the dead. And after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees just want to kill Jesus all the more. Because they don't believe Scripture. They don't believe. We don't need someone coming back to life. We don't need someone coming back to life. We don't need someone saying, I was in hell, it was awful, get saved. We don't need someone saying, I was in heaven, it was awesome, get saved. We don't need that. We don't need that. We have what we need. We have the, the, the straightforward truth of Scripture. If this doesn't work, nothing will. We read these verses in Sunday school. I'm going to read them again. From 2 Corinthians, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I mean, we have people that we are afraid that they are going to die, and they're going to die in rebellion against God. They're going to die rejecting Jesus. So we are afraid. We, we think for just a few moments about hell, and we get afraid for them. And we want them to believe the gospel. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We, re- we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. This is what we're proclaiming. Jesus Christ as Lord. Repent and believe the Gospel. And then Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what we have. Do you understand? This is what we have. We have the, the ability and the opportunity to tell our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones and our family members to tell them, here is the Gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in Holy Scripture. So we have, Abraham is telling us, we have all that we need. And then we pray, and then we hope that God will do for them what He did for us. Which is He shined in our hearts. He 
He shone, the, the God who said, let there be light, shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are going to sing in a couple minutes um, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. One of my favorite songs. Um, and one of the things, right? One of the things that we want more than anything when we sing that song together is we want more and more and more people singing that with us. We want people who, when they hear the name of Jesus, it's not sweet to them. It's, a, it's just a silly throwaway word that means nothing. Or it just represents like lunacy and ridiculousness and, and some sort of archaic cult from generations ago that doesn't mean anything anymore. Or, or, or it means restrictions and rules and, and oppression. For all kinds of reasons, when people hear the name of Jesus, it's not sweet to them. And what we want in this room more than anything is we want, we want people to join us in singing how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Especially when we consider the awfulness of hell and the joy of heaven. We have yet another reason to say how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Abraham says to us this morning, in order to get people from there to here, we don't, we're not going to tamper with God's Word. We're not going to be cunning. We're not going to be tricky. And we're not going to... And we're not gonna, have someone raised from the dead to come convince everybody. We have the Word of God. This is what God has always used to turn the lights on. To give the light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's continue to pray in broken-hearted ways. Let's continue to pray and to tell people the, the Gospel according to the Scriptures. Pray together. God, we are thankful for your grace. In times like this, we, we are just we are reminded once again how desperately we need your grace. How how we, we we're reminded exactly where we would be apart from your grace. We are so thankful that you shone in our hearts to give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of us can think of 10, 12, 15, 20 people that, that we desperately want you to do that for them as well. Give us confidence and courage to just continue to proclaim the, the good news that, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised again according to the Scriptures. The good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ as found in Your Holy Word. And I pray that You would snatch our loved ones. That they would be able to join us one day standing face to face with the Ancient of Days who knows our name. One day feasting 
at the table you have prepared for us. One day saying with all the saints just how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.